You're listening to the Road to Wisdom podcast, weaving stories told by wonderful minds about all things motherhood, health, intimacy, politics, nature, and everything in between. Join us on an adventure discovering unique experiences that we can learn from to enhance the ways in which we live. We are your hosts, Chloe and Kishia. Welcome to the Road to Wisdom podcast, Jalal. We are finally having this conversation and I've been waiting quite a while for it. I feel like it's one of my favourite topics and I've been really looking forward to introducing it to our listeners and it being the world of quantum biology, quantum health and circadian clocks, rhythm or whatever you call it. Um, So yeah, today we're going to just introduce all our listeners to those really cool nerdy things <laughs> and how that relates to parenting our kids and um yeah just thriving in general um I think it's really interesting because you have a dentistry background and we don't often see dentists walk this path and um I think it's really interesting that you have and you're really shining a light on how important these things are and how often they are misunderstood or just they're not even they don't even exist to your typical general practitioner or doctor, and so when they're trying to um, get to the bottom of some of the big or bigger issues, especially like metabolic dysfunction and or, or bigger um, or even simpler problems with our kids and ourselves, they just completely you don't really get far because um, you know often there's a big emphasis on diet um, and. Yeah, there's obviously a lot more to it and diet only gets you so far. So, Jalal. Well, thank (laughs) you so much for having me, ladies. And uh, it's a a real pleasure to come on and speak about some of the things that go on in my mind and uh, some of the methods that I use to help heal um, the patients that I work with. Really excited to talk about quantum health. And it can be a scary space when you're dipping your toes into this world quantum because uh, it's a big word and sometimes things like uh, Einstein start to creep into our mind and E equals MC squared and um, it can uh, it can get really scary. But it's actually really simple. Um, and most of the things which I talk about um, are really ancestral principles that um, we now have the science to back up the fact that these ancestral principles are the way that we should be living. So in a nutshell, that's really what quantum health is all about. It's returning to... The, um, the environments from which we evolved from and uh, using those to not only heal ourselves from some of the troubles we are experiencing um, as a modern society, but also thrive within those modern societies. Mm, it's so beautiful. <laughs> it really is kind of like it should be now that I know so much more about it, but I feel like it should be the first line of approach to certain things and then somewhere much further down the track would be like, nutrition um but yeah just for the per- the people who you know don't understand what even circadian clocks and rhythm is and how that kind of intertwines with what quantum health looks like could you just go into quantum like what quantum health means to you sure so basically our bodies are made up of um organs and tissues and muscle and blood vessels but if we break down all of those tissues down into smaller and smaller and smaller pieces we actually start to realize that everything is made up of electrons and protons and so these are like super small particles which are within um, all the um, chemical elements that you know we all remember learning on the periodic table um, the first of which is hydrogen and so all these electrons and protons they behave differently under different forms of light and so how these electrons and protons dance under sunlight, under artificial light, under red light therapy, etc. These all impact how our body behaves. And uh, fundamentally, quantum health is understanding that it's connecting back to sunlight in a safe and responsible way, as well as ground being grounded and connecting back to earth and swimming in the ocean waters and going to the beach, etc. are ways in which we can get our electrons and protons inside of all of our tissues to dance in a way that is healing and a way in which we can thrive. So in a nutshell, that's what quantum health is all about. 
And circadian health or circadian biology is really that concept of uh, the circadian clock that we have inside of us. It's a part of a, it's um, called the suprachiasmatic nucleus. It's a small part of the brain just behind the eye. And so all of the light signals that come into our eyes actually program how that circadian clock functions. And that circadian clock is something which runs every 24 hours and then it renews. But if we expose our eyes to different light frequencies that are unnatural, it can actually alter how quickly that circadian clock, which is supposed to run for 24 hours, how quickly it resets back to where it started. So if you think of a clock, you've got um, you've got the hour hand moving from like 12, 1 all the way through to 6 and then back up to 12, and that takes 12 hours. But what if that took 10 hours? Or what if that took 9.5 hours? What we do is we start to speed up time. And um, the easiest way to kind of liken the or explain the impact of time speeding up on us is it's actually we're accelerating towards the end and we're bringing the end of our lives further forward. And so the lights that we are exposing ourselves and our children to these days are completely unnatural and they are accelerating um, uh, accelerating us towards death. And so I'm all about trying to slow down time within us using light so that we can heal and thrive. Mm, wow. That was big. <laughs> it's just accelerating towards death. Like <laughs> we'll just keep it nice and nice. But to and be uh, real, we have really I mean, we live in such a modern we're living in such a modern world where tech and LED lights, um, because I don't think anybody has the old lights in their house anymore, even windows that don't allow the correct um spectrum of light to come in or um, you know, like kids go to school and they're sitting under blue weird lights and they have tech and they look at screens all day and um, I know my kid's the only weird kid who wears blue blockers in their class and I'm pretty sure she's stopped wearing <laughs> them because nobody else wears them. But um, yeah, I mean like it doesn't – If the more you think about it and the more you think about how dissociated with these really basic concepts and how far away we've removed ourselves from simply hanging out under a tree or walking or being – a hundred percent, twenty four seven connected to the earth. Now we've got shoes and rubber soles, and we live in these buildings. We don't. We're afraid of the sun because our, you know, governing body has told us to be incredibly fearful of this source of life. Um, it's not hard to to start to see where we're potentially creating our own living nightmares. So, hundred um, percent. And that blue light story that you touch on is like. The, one of the most overlooked areas of health because it scrambles our circadian clocks. But what a lot of people don't realize is that the receptors in our eye that are picking up that blue light are actually also found on our skin. So our skin is also like a blue light receiver. And so if we're walking around in the nighttime and if we are being really conscious about blue light coming into our eyes and we're wearing blue light blocking glasses, similar to like the glasses that Bono, the lead singer of U2, wears, um, then we are protecting our eyes. But if we're walking around with a singlet on and shorts, then our skin is still getting exposed and it's still affecting all of the other clocks which fall underneath the circadian clock in our body. So, like, it really is a, a much bigger story than um, just protecting our eyes. And in addition to that, it really affects um, it really affects metabolism and the way that we metabolise food and the types of foods that we metabolise and so coming back to your point, Chloe, about how, we, you know, we've got our children bathing in blue lights at school and um, bathing in blue lights at home and where um, they're, they're on devices and they're on computers doing homework and they're watching telly, et cetera. And uh, we are doing our best to protect themselves from the source of all energy on this earth, which is the sun. And we're slip slop slapping and we've got hats on and we've got um, a whole host of other things. Um, to protect our children from the sun, I would say overprotect our children from the sun, but we're not doing anything to protect themselves from this artificial light, which only really came into play in our modern society in 1879 when the first light bulb was made. So that's only 150 years ago. And you don't need to be an evolutionary biologist to appreciate that evolution takes like thousands of years, if not millions of years, 
So 150 years to get accustomed to the light that we are exposing ourselves to is not enough. Mm. So when we've done this to our kids and ourselves, because, I mean, you know, like we as adults, many people go to work, they sit in a train or a bus or whatever. Can I, it starts earlier than that. We're born under hospital lights and like Spot with on. flashlights in your face as you're emerging from <laughs> your mother's vagina. Like it's just, it starts really early. Yeah. And I mean, it, like you can take it before that preconception, the mum's sitting under blue lights yeah. and dad is also sitting under blue lights and those blue light sperm and egg could join and you know that's what oh, you're bathing in i just day. have this vision of like the glowing <laughs> blue sperm and getting the anyway we won't go there but I'd, i would love for you to just ex- explain like in a snapshot if we've done this to ourselves and our children for many moons many days for their whole lives from conception to seven year seven years old and for us that have been bathing in it from you know the beginning of our lives because it's been around what's happening to our bodies like what's the difference between being away from it and in it? Like what's happening to us? So the effect that these artificial lights has on us is um, really boils down to something called the mitochondrion and plural is mitochondria. So the mitochondria are like the engines of a car. They're like the power plants inside of our cells that produce all the energy. And um, what happens is the food that we eat essentially gets broken down into electrons. And these, there's that word electrons again, and these electrons actually feed into the mitochondria and produce energy, which we know as um, ATP. But um, it also produces water. And that's something which a lot of people kind of uh, look over, the fact that we actually produce our own water. Now, inside that mitochondria, there's like, just like there's six cylinders of a V6 car, the mitochondria, we can think of it as like a V5. So it's got five cylinders inside of it. And um, each of those cylinders is actually negatively affected by blue light exposure. So the sun has blue light. And that's actually the way that we tell time. It's actually from the blue light of the sun. But the thing is, is that any of the good stuff that blue light of the sun does to us, um, there's also some bad stuff that the blue light does, which I'm about to elaborate on. But the sun is all, always balanced with equal amounts of blue and red light. And the red light is very regenerative and very healing. So any of the negative effects of blue light from the sun are always balanced by the red. But we can look at TVs and the LEDs in our ceilings and the fluorescent lights at work, etc., and start to realize that the light that we are exposing ourselves to is not balanced by any red. It's like in some cases, 80 to 85% blue light. And so that blue light hits on the four or five cylinders inside of the mitochondria and essentially dulls them down and stops them from working properly. So then we can't actually produce any energy from the food that we are eating. And we can't actually produce water from the food that we are eating. And so what we end up with is we end up with dehydration inside of our cells, which has got nothing to do with the water or the amount of water that we drink and everything to do with the lack of water that we are making inside of our cells. And when cells are dehydrated, that's when they can't work properly. That's when proteins and hormones um, and enzymes can't work properly because they all need to be hydrated by water. So fundamentally, like that is the big story about blue light it's not just the fact that it is upsetting our body's sense of time but it is also deeply affecting the way that our body makes energy and the way that our body is able to utilize that energy using enzymes and hormones etc amazing and what would the flow-on effect like can you go into details of what the flow-on effects are from that so so the blue light can actually negatively impact the, the gut and the way the gut works, leading to things like constipation, diarrhea, uncontrolled motions, even bloating. And in addition to that, it can also uh, impact the way that um, we are thinking, cognition, um, we can have behavioral issues that result because the blue light actually plays with the dopamine levels inside of our brain. Um, and when we are low on dopamine or we are high on dopamine, out of balance from what we should be, that is actually um, a sign of uh, 
the different spectrums of the behavioral issues that we see in children and even adults. Um, and in, in addition to that, I mean, there's effects on the microbiome and there's plenty of studies to show that it's actually UVB light, which is critical in increasing the diversity of the microbiome in our mouth and in our gut. It's not necessarily just the soil quality of, um, of in, in which the food was grown. So light actually has a huge role to play in the micro, microbiome diversity. Mm. And so I've heard you say in a, in a podcast that you've done that you believe that a lot of the bigger dysfunctions like metabolic dysfunction, even cancer, can be attributed back to your circadian health. Um, how does that happen? So if your body loses a sense of time, we have to think about why time is so important inside of the body. So every cell has like 100,000 chemical reactions happening every second, 100,000. And so they have to be timed to perfection because whatever the result is of the first reaction then feeds into being the reactant for the second reaction. And so we need to have everything, just like a, a set of 100 dominoes, all working in perfect synchrony. So when our body loses a sense of time, then all those reactions are happening out of sync and things start to break down. Um, in addition to that, it's uh, one of the things about most can cancers is the idea that there is an extra um, replication of the cells in that particular tissue, which is why it forms a tumour. So there's an over-replication. Uh, but what actually slows down cell replication is UV light. And so cancer isn't just necessarily a story where we should be considering treatments with all of the traditional Western um, methods, but we should also be considering some of these more ancestral principles of like responsibly increasing sun exposure so that we can increase the amount of UV light that our body is holding and slowing down cell replication. That's very interesting because as soon as anyone does get a cancer diagnosis, they're put into a hospital under artificial lighting and depending on the level of illness they present with, there could be under hospital lighting 24-7 and constantly being woken up through the night, etc. So something as simple as moving away from artificial light sources to help your body to recover and heal to any extent just seems like such a simple and logical thing to do and yet it is the furthest thing from what we are seeing within the western system like in mm -hmm. the industrial medicalized system so very interesting <laughs> yeah i kind of liken a lot of these principles like grounding and um, safe sun exposure to because they're so simple it's like it's so simple it's hard because people think about that and they're like, that can't possibly heal me because it's just too simple. It's got to be way more complicated than that. And I think we've fallen into the trap of overcomplicating what health and healing looks like. And if we, the simpler we make it, that, um, that old uh, KISS principle, right? Keep it simple, stupid. Um, the, the, the simpler we make it, the better the chances of us actually healing successfully and then thriving. Mm, I want to just go into your original field of work of dentistry and I've heard you say that usually the first thing that you ask your patients um, is what their relationship with light and nature is before you query why they may have a cavity or try to pinpoint the reason. Um, and I find this firstly very cool because most dentists obviously operate in a very different way. It's all about extraction, digging, drilling, fluoride, um, and so most people just straight up avoid going to the dentist these days because they've heard enough to know that it's probably not what they want to do. And I find it interesting because I've always – I do think that there's like a other biological reason why certain teeth begin to have certain problems in the first place. So this is kind of just like an extra layer of understanding what is going on in the mouth and what that can represent as a whole picture. So it's interesting for children who – you know, I know a lot of kids and you probably do too, Kashia, and you probably do too, Jalal – that seem to have this, you know, good foundation, like maybe they were born at home with no intervention and their parents fed them really good food. 
but they've got a cavity or they've got a narrow palate or they're breathing through their nose, uh, mouth and not their nose. And so now they've got these giant tonsils and, you know, obstructed airways and like things are not looking good. So from a quantum and circadian standpoint, how is this contributing to these kind of issues? Um, it's a really good question. A really good question. So one of the leading pieces of research which has really helped to shape this uh, greater awareness in dentistry about the importance of latent nutrition and jaw development airways was the work of Weston Price. And um, he uh, wrote a book, I can't remember exactly what the title was, but there was mm. something referring to like nutritional degeneration. Yeah, it's um, a powerhouse of a book. It's like a, it's so I've got it. It's massive and I've not finished it. What's it's it like, called? It's called like. And, and it's brilliant. Uh, and yeah. so he, he points, he puts the, the excellent jaw development and dental development and lack of decay and presence of wisdom teeth fitting in the mouth. He puts that all down to the nutrition of these indigenous communities who hadn't really been tampered with by modern society. But the other aspect which uh, Dr. Price may have not really uh, been aware of or considered was the fact that these communities that he was assessing and researching were actually living in an ancestral way. So they were out in the sun all the time. They were grounded. There was no artificial light. And I think that's a key aspect because things like growth hormone, things like vitamin D, growth hormones, like one of the key aspects behind driving a lot of the jaw development and just general growth of children. Um, vitamin D is critical for dental health as well. And uh, we've got a lot of people, not just children, but adults as well, who were deficient in vitamin D. And they are not, and they're thinking that they can bypass the vitamin D by supplementing, but through a very, very complicated way, which I'm happy to get into, vitamin D supplementation doesn't actually change the vitamin D levels inside of your body the way that we want it to change. And so um, the the aspect of light in the mouth and and uh, in in terms of tooth decay is is critical because it's going to improve the oral microbiome, which is going to improve the uh, specifically UV light exposure, is going to improve the oral microbiome and increase the... Uh, the resistance of the mouth to decay um, is going to optimize saliva flow, is going to optimize the hormones that are driving growth and healing and regeneration. And that's going to put children in good stead. So if we're just focusing on the nutritional side of things, and if we're just getting our children to eat chewy foods, but they're doing all of that in blue light, and they're not doing any grounding, and they're not getting outside and exposing their bodies to the natural lights of the sun in a safe and responsible way, then we are kind of doing just a half job. And so my conversation with parents is always about how are you um, exposing your children to nature? Um, are you doing enough of it? And all these types of things. Because if we, if I just talk about diet, it's just a half job and I just can't do a half job when I'm caring for people. Mm. That's so interesting. I I feel like I beat this horse a little bit, but we I, I did do a little delving into um the blue zones recently and they talk about diet but something else that you see in these blue zones are people working with nature and getting out and about and like being physical with the land and they're not like they're not in these environments where they're under fluorescence all the time they're not in these environments like a lot of their work is outside in the sunlight in the gardens in I don't know fields with goats and whatnot yeah um I, um I i believe that the blue zones are great but i believe that we can create our own blue zones and we don't necessarily need to be in one of those four or five places around the world to thrive and i think another key aspect of the blue zones is just the community aspect of it all isn't it like these people are laughing they've got you've got old gentlemen that are probably having coffee every morning and playing chess with their mates um and in it's that sunlight. aspect of <laughs> in the sunlight as well and it's it's these aspects um not just i think we in health tend to just think about ways in which we can heal people and sometimes even try and play god without realizing that some of the most even more basic things and sunlight exposure such as just community and laughter have a huge role to play in how our electrons 
and protons dance and um, emotion I regard emotion as emotion as in energy in motion and so the message I have to my to my um, patients and anyone that kind of follows my work is that it's it isn't just about sun it isn't just about food it is also about community and um, connection to consciousness and spirituality Mm. Oh, 100%. I couldn't agree more. Yeah, we've been talking about this a lot lately that the missing part is joy for a lot of people. And, um, you know, people, I mean, we've like the last, what, 20 years has just been such an emphasis on diet and there's this massive, you know, dogma around it. And people just want to argue till the end of time, what is the best way to eat? Is it carnivore? Is it vegan? There's a great argument for both. And we'll actually just talk, we talk about this often because Kashi is more plant-based, I'm more animal-based, but I've been both. And only in the last few years have I realised that it actually doesn't matter. Um, It's more about where you are and how you actually consume the food. And I love the way you speak on it and, you know, uh, uh, the community, the quantum community in general speak about food and the light being in it and where it's grown and how important it all is and I'd love to just get into that a little bit too Hmm. yeah sure so um there's a lot of polarity in the diet space about what are the foods that we should be eating what are the the diets that we should be eating and um you know there's the carnivore diet and there's um the vegan diet and all these type of um all these types of concepts and and arguments that happen on social media i tend to stay out of it and keep it simple just eat what's seasonal and local and the reason why that is more important is because the food that we are growing that we are eating should be grown in the same environment that we are living in because when those foods get broken down into electrons and those electrons are passing into the mitochondria. The mitochondria are kind of scanning the barcode of those electrons, just like we would um, at Woolworths at, at the checkout. And that barcode is being checked by the mitochondria and is being correlated to the light environment that that person is sitting in at the time. And so if it's the same, then the mitochondria is happy. But if it's not, then we start to get deficient production of energy and water inside of the mitochondria, something we call mitochondrial heteroplasmy. Um, So the most important aspect of food is seasonal and local. And there are arguments behind, I I think they're valid arguments behind why even things such as fish are super important because a lot of our brain is DHA, which is um, an omega-3 fat made from or sourced from marine animals. Um, So... I always encourage those that are plant-based to at least consider fish because that will kind of just be a really nice balance between between both. Um, it's really good for the brain as well. And um, our, our body produces DC electric current from the sun using the DHA from fish. So that's another quantum reason why fish are, are really, really important. I just had a patient yesterday who was a pescatarian and she has been working 30 years in front of a computer doing um, architecture, architectural designs. And she was well, and she was like, didn't have any issues with her eyes. And um, when I was, and she's been following some of my work online and um, came to me and was like, question she had to ask was like, why am I not compensating, compensating so heavily, despite the nature of the work that I've had for the last 30 years? And so I asked her a bit about her lifestyle and her diet and she spends a bit of time in nature, not as much as she would like, but she's a pescatarian. And I said, that's your, that's your ticket out because you are replenishing yourself with DHA so that whenever you are out in the sun, you're really harnessing the power of the sun optimally and that keeps you going. And so she was really happy about that. Um, just a little anecdote to suggest that um, eating fish um, in addition to a plant-based diet would be really beneficial. Mm. And I think that just makes so much sense because I've, I have had a little bit of an issue wrapping my head around quantum biology purely because I did biology at school and, and chemistry. And so I know like quantum physics, which is something that was just, (laughs) (laughs) um, but, but quantum biology, um, Chloe was speaking to me about it earlier and she's like, well, really, it's simple. Like you want to be eating the food that's getting the same environmental information as your body is getting. Like you recognize it. And as soon as you break it down to that, like, uh, of course, (laughs) it makes so much sense. So like 
I often observe the arguments between people online because like I'm always open. And um, there's a person that we know. I'm just going to tell it, say her name. Her name's Ellen Fisher. She lives in Hawaii. She's a very big influencer. She's vegan, promotes it. And she seems to be thriving, but she lives in Hawaii and she eats everything from her backyard. She's she's a mother of five as well. Beautiful, healthy, five vegan children. Um, yeah. Mm. And I think I think about that a lot and I'm like, well, the anecdotal evidence is that – and she's shared like about her placentas and how healthy they are and thick and red and juicy and it's kind of like, well, I wonder how that happens if it's – if, you know, the argument is carnivore is the best. But is it because her food is grown the same light information and, you know, energy and everything that surrounds her? Like is there, a, is there an argument for being able to thrive with not as much meat as like Paul Saladino eats versus Ellen? Do you know what I mean? There is an argument. Environment trumps everything because we have to also – rewind and understand that food is essentially stored light. That's why it's called photosynthesis. And when the food is metabolized inside of our body, it releases light. And that is the actual signal of the food where the light hits the water inside of our body, sends a vibration or a frequency and the water jiggles accordingly. So to think of uh, one specific type way of eating as being the be all and end all is a little bit short-sighted because light is still the, the story and it's um, when, when food is broken down, it's the light that's released is hitting the body and creating these resonances, these frequencies, which is why all the quantum people speak about frequencies and vibrations because that's essentially what food does. And you can get those same frequencies and vibrations if you're immersing yourself in nature all the time. And this specific person that you're talking about seems to be doing that. So that is sufficient to overcome any supposed deficiencies that she may have in the way that she eats. Mm. And I think that really does tie in with the information that we're fed. Like if you see um, people who uh, have moved out of their original place of birth and their or like where their ancestry is from and they go to somewhere, say they were born in a really hot climate and their DNA is has been coded for such and then they move to somewhere like Melbourne where it's cold, you're not getting the same light, you're not getting the same foods essentially. It's not even just that you're not eating what you you were eating but like if you move to Melbourne from somewhere like from yeah. the tropics, <laughs> yeah, you're like you're moving from, you know, in the tropics you probably are eating more local produce. You like because yep. food is so much more readily available, it's so much easier to grow. Then when you move to Melbourne, you know, all of that stuff is exported and you're not actually eating what you like food mm-hmm. that's been grown in the environment that you're living in. And you know, and then you see people not thriving in those environments. Um which actually does bring me to my next question, which I remember, <laughs> which is <laughs> If we are living in these environments where we are under blue light and that's not avoidable or we need to do work at night in front of a computer, what are the ways, like similar to your pescatarian story, that we can offset the damages that are being caused by... um, Modern life. Modern life, yeah. So... The main ways would be protecting yourself as much as possible with a physical barrier between you and the light. And so that can be just wearing long sleeve clothing. That can be wearing blue light blocking glasses. That can be wearing a hat if you're in the office and that's acceptable um, because the hat's going to cover the light from coming into your eyes. But if you're looking at a screen, then still wearing the blue blockers. It can be um, eating more fish. The more blue light you're in, the more fish you need to eat to offset. And it can just be being very intentional about the way that you plan your weekends and make it make it a point to spend time in nature, take your family for a bush walk, go to the beach, spend a long time at the beach, have the umbrella out so that you're not burning. Um, but uh, it's yeah, really being intentional about the way that you go about your day every day, every week. And the way that I like to term it is like think about your relationship with light. And what is the light that you want to 
bathe in and what is the light that you want to protect yourself from. Mm. So in terms of the fear of the sun, we talk about sun safe sun exposure. What is your guide for sun safe sun exposure? It would be to first understand that the sun is a full spectrum of different light frequencies and that not all the light frequencies are there all the time. So when the sun rises, um, it's predominantly red and blue light and there's no UV light at sunrise. And then slowly as it starts to rise, um, we have something called the UVA rise, which is when the UV light starts to be introduced into the sunlight. And that can differ according to latitude and location and geography even. And there's an app that you can download on both Android and iOS called circadian and that once you type in your location it can guide you on when the uva and the when the uvb light comes out so if you can have like as much sun exposure as you possibly can before the uv light comes out um, that is a great way to build up what we call a solar callus just like if you're at the gym and you're doing deadlifts and you start to get calluses on your hands it's the same type of callus but it's just a resistance to damage from the sun um so like Right now it's probably UVA light. Maybe the UVB is about to come out. I'm out here at the moment and I'm not feeling the heat at all because I've worked hard over the last 12, 20, 18, 24 months to build a really solid solar callus. But you build the solar callus through red light. You can also use red light therapy at home, ideally during daylight hours. And um, those are the ways in which you can start to build that ability to handle the sun and then it's also be uh, all about being responsible when you are in the sun because when your skin tells you it's time to go in the shade go in the shade or put some clothes on or put a hat on um, so it's not necessarily you being out in the uv light and it's also about being responsible when you are in the sun so if your skin is telling you it's it's starting to get a bit hot and a burn is coming on, that's the time to go in the shade or put some uh, put some long sleeve clothing on and protect your skin or put a hat on. One of the key things though is a pet hate and it's always controversial is um, tossing out the sunglasses because the sunglasses actually block all of the signals of the sun from coming into your eye to program hormones, etc. And one of the key signals that um, the sunglasses prevent is UV light coming into the eyes and activating a hormone called alpha MSH, which travels from your eye down to your skin and tells your skin to lay down melanin, which is the pigmented molecule that increases your resistance to UV sun damage. Would you extend that to sun cream as well? Yes. Um, I'm not a fan of sunscreen just because of all the chemicals that are in it many of which are going to also block UVA light. And UVA light is actually the light that we need to correct the damage to DNA that is inflicted by UVB light. Mm. Does that make sense? A lot yes. of sense. Everyone take note. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's so controversial, right? We actually recently had a clinical researcher come and tell us um, after studying for like 20 years about the damage of sunscreen. I think 50 years. 50, oh, yeah, she was very old. She was like in her 80s. 80s. <laughs> but um, yeah, it's such a go-to. I mean, people just, especially with kids, because they think they're doing the right thing and protecting them. But I think it's to make it clear, it's actually protecting them by not being the first thing you do when you get outside. Hmm. Yeah. I, I, I had a mother um, bring her four children in the other day just for um, a checkup regarding jaws and um, and mouth breathing, et cetera. And three of them had a had a nice tan, but one of them was like really, really red and you can tell they'd been burnt. Um, and um, she follows me on social media and so like um, she knew what I was thinking. And she's like, Jalal, only one child was wearing sunglasses on our family holiday. Can you guess who it was? <laughs> and so basically that was like a ni another nice little anecdote to say that um, the one child that was trying to protect themselves from the sun increased their damage to the sun, whereas the others didn't because they didn't wear sunscreen and they didn't wear sunglasses. Wow. It's like how did our ancestors survive, especially in Australia, without sunglasses, hats, sunscreen and long shirts? I mean, 
exactly. They <laughs> we, built we they must, built melanin. Yeah. So the, my fashion statement isn't sunglasses. My fashion statement is is melanin. So I'm looking to make melanin great again. <laughs> it's a fancy tan. Make melanin great again. <laughs> Can we get oh t-shirts made with? <laughs> you need to make t-shirts. I swear. We so we so should. We so should. <laughs> That's awesome. And I just want to go back because I know, like, sometimes my personal shares and personal problems are incredibly helpful for our listeners. Um, they are. Ha- oh, they are. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> I don't pretend to be perfect or pretend to have the perfect children health outcomes as well. But um, and I've briefly shared this with you, Jalal, on Instagram that one of my kiddos has got like she adopted mouth breathing at age two completely random I'd have no idea what happened um and she has like full obstructed nasal like adenoids and massive tonsils and um we did like a whole bunch of stuff um like oral facial myofunctional stuff to try to like get her tongue stronger and posture better and we did like lots of diet stuff and pulled out you know allergy foods and just all the things and we've done heaps and then she just like was just I felt like I needed to take action so we started seeing Eric Davies I don't know if you know him the biological dentist I've heard of him yeah yeah. and he obviously suggested this thing expander and so we did that for a little bit and we're still technically doing it but we've just taken it slow um but I wonder from your perspective like what is happening there that because I know this is a really common problem actually like big tonsils get them cut out you still got mouth breathing it still hasn't fixed the problem even though it's marketed like you go to an ENT and they're like you just got to get them plucked out like this is what we do um but what's your take on that like what's happening to the little kiddos that so that's a bit really big question so strap in (laughs) um the tonsils and adenoids are like smoke alarms in the house okay and so when they're enlarged, it's like the smoke alarm's going off and saying there's smoke somewhere, you know, sort it out. Call the fire, call the um, fire emergency, um, which is me. And <laughs> Cole Jalal, what, triple zero. What ENTs do, well, me and Cole, and that might be something, Cole and I, that might be something we, we get into later. Um, and what we do as a profession is we recommend to have the adenoids and tonsils taken out. But what we're really doing is just taking out the batteries of the smoke alarm. Mm -hmm. The problem is still there. And that's why children are continuing to mouth breathe despite the tissues being resected and removed. That is why they are still not sleeping more. That is why they may still have behavioral issues or bedwetting issues um, or cognitive issues. And um, they might not be thriving. They might not be eating as well. And so we kind of have to rewind and kind of ask ourselves, well, what's gone wrong in the first place? And what has more often than not gone wrong is some sort of um, trauma along the way. And that could be a trauma to the head or could be a trauma to the tailbone because they're both connected by a very strong, thin sheet, um, which we call the dura. And so we can have a knock to the tailbone that affects the head and vice versa. And that dura kind of encases the entire spinal column. So it could be riding a horse at age five and falling off and landing on your, on your bum, or it could be a forceps delivery as um, at birth or a cesarean section. Um, Because a lot of these modern interventions in um, the birthing process are actually unintentionally causing trauma to the children's craniums. And what happens is naturally our cranial bones are actually moving out and moving back in every time we breathe. It's a natural motion. And one of the big um, purposes of that motion is to drain all the lymph that is building up in our heads. So when we have a trauma to our head or to our tailbone, it impacts that motion. And so it impacts the lymph that is draining. And the lymph is obviously tied to adenoids and tonsils because they're lymphoid tissues, right? So we need optimal motion of the cranium and we need optimal motion of the tongue underneath that upper jaw to press up against the upper jaw to drain the nose. But when we don't have that because of traumas that I've mentioned earlier, even things like car um, car accidents and whiplash, et cetera, then we get a buildup of lymph. We don't have enough drainage and we also have restriction of jaw development. So the jaws can't grow forwards 
and outwards. And so what Cole, who's an osteopath that I work with very closely in Byron Bay, um, what he and I have put together is a program called The Quantum Kid, where um, we are very, very passionate about not only unlocking the uh, hurdles towards optimal jaw development, but also unlocking any cranial and sacral strains that children may have that are impeding their ability to breathe properly, to sleep properly, to grow beautiful jaws and faces, and also to thrive. And it's a very, very holistic approach because it's not just dentistry. It's not just osteopathy. There's a myofunctional component to it as well with all the tongue and lip muscles. There's a breathing component to it as well. He and I both talk extensively about nutrition with our parents um, that we're working with and um, and about light environment. So it's really a whole quantum big picture approach to each child. And we're always kind of focusing on not necessarily being the healers, but actually unlocking the body's inherent capacity to heal. Um, and one of the things that Cole and I are always focusing on when we're working with children is actually, actually listening to the mothers because the mothers have this unique intuition about their children because they're quantum, they're quantum entangled with their children, right? So we can, um, we can, they passed on the mitochondria to their children. It's like a wireless connection that's there for life. So if we can tap into the mother's intuition and understand from the mother what they feel is going wrong with their child, it really gives us the clues on what keys we need to turn in order to help this child thrive. So, um, yeah, the adenoids and tonsils isn't just a take them out and away you go. It's it's a whole process of drainage of the limb of restoring all the optimal motions back to that person so that they can thrive. That actually leads me to to tongue ties, and I'm sure this is something that you've seen before, Jalal. If with adenoids we're not removing them, do you have a similar take on tongue ties? And lip ties? Yeah, so I always get cold to assess the tongue ties from uh, um, from the perspective of does it need to be released by a specialist or can we just, as in like does it need to be a little snip mm-hmm. or can we just do some sort of fascial release under the tongue in the floor of the mouth and that's enough to get the tongue back to optimal mobility. And a lot of the time if we go with a more non-surgical approach, then um, we can get the results that we're looking for because... Um, we can tend to be a bit too trigger happy with cutting tongues without understanding that there is a much bigger picture. The tongues actually hang off the two temporal bones, which are the temples here around the ears. And so if the temporal bones are locked up, that can affect that can affect tongue function. One of the main nerves that comes out of the head is called the hypoglossal nerve, and that basically provides all the um, all the input into the tongue to tell it how to move. Um, and uh, that can sometimes be compressed. And that is coming out of the back of the head. So like there's a much bigger picture than just, oh, the tongue's restricted, let's just let's mm. just snip it. Um, and that's where this kind of holistic quantum osteopathic dental approach really gets optimal results for our children. Gosh, there's so much there. There's so much, but well, so good because mm. I just, there are so many families that can relate to tongue ties and swollen tonsils like they're just such common issues. and the, the other thing I'd really like to talk about as well is that this concept of upper jaw expansion or palate expansion because um, if we have to ask ourselves, okay, well, the teeth might be crowded so there's not enough space for the teeth to fit. And so that tells us the jaw is small. And so if we just make the jaw small, it's still a little bit short-sighted because we're not appreciating that the jaw is small because the cranium is not allowing it to express itself fully. Mm. And so if we first have to unlock the cranium, which is why we need that osteopathic approach, otherwise you're just mechanically like forcing a bigger jaw in a head that's not willing to receive it. Mm. And that actually creates more tension in the cranium and potentially more headaches. And so what we're doing as a profession is we are straightening teeth and jaws in craniums that are twisted and not ready to receive the straightened teeth and the bigger jaws. And so it's like we've just got it completely the wrong way around. The problem is, is that it's just a much slower way of doing things. It's the right way, but it's a much slower way. It's more focused on healing. It's more focused on physiological forces that the body naturally uses rather than mechanical forces that a clinician wants to impart on the on that person. And so 
Um, that's the way that I do it, which I know works. I know it's safe. I know I can't hurt a child. And the only thing that I can do is help that child and, and the parents. So um, uh, I think it's really important that those that are listening rethink this concept of, okay, the jaws are small. Let's just make the jaws bigger. Because just like the hand is connected to the arm via the wrist, well, the mouth is connected to the head. And so if we're going to make changes to the mouth without considering the head, you actually stand to create more damage for your child. And the number of children that I see coming in who are like 14, 15, 16, they've had braces, braces come off, they've got headaches, they've got clicking jaws. Well, the number of adults that come to see me and I go through their history, I ask how they were born and ask them about car accidents and sports injuries, et cetera, et cetera. More often than not, there was a trauma that led to, that was in the lead up to when they had braces, the braces straightened the teeth, locked everything in, and they can't get out of that cranial strain that they've been locked in. And so they might go to a physiotherapist or an osteopath or a chiropractor every month for like two years and not have any benefit because as soon as they walk out the door and have their next meal, those straightened teeth snap that person back into the strain that they were trying to get out of. Mm -hmm. And so I don't want that for the next generation of children, which is why we've formed this uh, program called the Quantum Kid. We want to raise a, a generation of quantum kids who are immersed in nature, who've got beautiful jaws and heads and beautiful breathing. They can critically think because their brains have the space to, and um, we're really excited about it. I absolutely love that and I'm totally on board with that, but I'm definitely in a pickle because I've began palate expansion. And it's funny that you've said all that is because I've I've gone through so many things to try to help her breathe because ultimately I know that plucking out bits and pieces from the body is a no-no and but I've got to the point where it's been like she's seven and a half now and it's been happening since she was two so I'm at the point of like exhausting all these professional opinions and help that I resorted to releasing lip ties which felt incredibly wrong and I regret now doing palate expansion there's that mother's intuition again, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, which I don't feel like I look at it and I like when we first did it, like her, her we had like such rapid expansion. I was like, this doesn't, this just like what I don't know about this. And so we went and I was like, I think it just we need to have a break because it's happened really quickly and that doesn't feel right. So we've done nothing yep. for like six weeks or eight weeks. It's just plates sitting in there. But like what that's would smart, that's the smartest thing you've done? What would we do if we've begun I and mean, she's had she has had a rapid expansion but it has settled like they have gone moved again which also tells me that as soon as we end this there's a high chance that the real problem underlying problem hasn't been addressed and her teeth could just go back anyway you're you're spot on there is a chance for that i asked this question have you ever walked on a footpath or a pavement that's next to a really well-developed or old tree and you know how like the root works its way underneath the concrete? And like, how can it possibly make its way underneath the concrete? Because like it's a root, it grows so slowly, it's predominantly water. Like how can water break its way through concrete? That's the same thing that happens in a cranium that's not happy with the jaws. It's going to force those teeth to relapse. And that's why we have relapse after orthodontics where the if the child is not wearing retainers or if we don't fix in those retainers with wires, then the teeth are going to relapse because the cranium always wins. And so putting those wires from like one side of the mouth through to the other to fix in the, the, the work that's been done by the orthodontics still ends up locking the cranium even further. And so the real approach, the, the appropriate approach from my perspective is we do the jaws and the cranium in sync which is why our program I feel is really special because we have both Cole and I in the same room working on the children. So it's not even like you have to come and see me, I give you an appliance, then you go and see Cole the osteopath to have it checked because he checks it on the spot because we're in the same room. So once again, we're making it easier for mothers because they're not having to make separate appointments and travel here and travel there. Everything's just done in the one go. And it's just faster results, better results, and um, yeah, uh, that's for me, I believe to be the, the best approach in terms of how do we help children grow out of these issues that they've 
grown up with. Mm. And I mean, for anyone listening that's had rapid maxillary expansion for their children, it's not like it's the end of the world. It's just that there's probably a good argument to go and see a a well-skilled osteopath to help just release any strains that may have been built up in that head. Um, So the body has an inherent capacity to heal despite what we may throw at it. Um, And it's just about turning those keys. Mm. Um, Jalal, for people, I've, I've got two children who as their teeth were coming through, they were really, really crooked and their mouth looked really crowded. Um, that was my second child who his teeth have actually straightened up since. Um, but my toddler, my one-year-old, her teeth, like her bottom teeth almost came through like that. <laughs> and okay. they're still, for people who can't see me, like oh, like the tooth oh, is almost like, yeah, like 90 degrees wrong. Um, when would you suggest going to see a specialist? Like, I mean, I, I know Cole, so I could... <laughs> drop him a line but what what age would you say to you know go and maybe yeah start addressing it or wait it out so with some of the appliances that are going that we would use that are going to start to correct these issues it's probably around four years old Mm. onwards where we can really start to make some effective change only because we know the children are going to wear those appliances at that age Mm -hmm. we could we go down to like a three and a half year old if they're super compliant. Um, so it just depends on the mothers knowing whether or not their children are going to wear an appliance. But um, that is probably the most appropriate age that you just got to hang tight with with your little toddler until they're at that age where um, where uh, they can benefit from the appliance. But um, yeah, would you start osteo work? And like or craniosacral work before that stage to see yes. if you can start to release the fascia yeah. and yeah okay mm, definitely okay. just to wrap up the fundamentals of being a thriving human being in this crazy ass modern world <laughs> our take homes yeah take homes how do we do it our cheat sheet go Jalal. how do we do it how do we do it we get morning sun exposure we get a little bit of uv throughout the day we minimize our exposure to blue light, love, joy, laughter, community, healthy eating that is seasonal and local, not processed. And um, I would say uh, optimal breathing and optimal sleep in which jaws have a big role to play. Not that hard, is it, people? So simple. <laughs> we just broke down quantum biology for you. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Thank you so much. I'm actually really looking forward to catching up with you guys when you're here in Byron in November and hopefully you can work some magic on my little kiddos. Um, That's a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, ladies, and really excited to see you when I'm in Byron, Chloe. Can I get in on this, by the way? I'm also in Byron, so I just like... Do you want another four kids to look at as well? More than happy to. The more the the merrier. Amazing. We've learned a lot and i'm sure we've exploded some heads in a good way mm. and um i yeah, think we're gonna thing. get out of our fluorescent lights now yeah every time i look at that light <laughs> it's, it's there to make me look good i'm like why why do you think i'm outside because <laughs> you have I more know. integrity than me <laughs> and also you don't have my husband who's like the lighting needs to be right girls <laughs> Oh, funny. Oh. We're going to go outside now and put our feet, feet in the, the chicken poo. <laughs> the chicken poo. <laughs> That's it. Get a download. A download yeah. of photons and an upload of electrons, hey? That's right. Well, we can tell that you're, you've been harvesting all the good electrons with your incredible knowledge and capacity to share that with us today. So thank you so much. And oh, Before we let you go, where can people find you, Jalal, and do some more um, investigation into quantum biology? Yeah, sure. Uh, my social media handles on Instagram and Twitter are K2Caliber, K2C-A-L-I-B-R-E, and my website is K2Caliber.com. And the website for all of the quantum dentistry um, side of work that I do with children with um, in conjunction with Cole Clayton is thequantumkid.com.au. Excellent. And we will link to that in our show notes so that it's nice and easy for people to find Fabulous. Thank you so much, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. 
Thanks for tuning in to the Road to Wisdom podcast. To join the journey, you can follow us on Instagram at theroadtowisdom.podcast and at www.theroadtowisdompodcast.com. Don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. We look forward to seeing you next week with more juicy content.